terms of our training, we focus on, you know, training our muscles, training our heart. As athletes, I, I think we underestimate that we should also be focusing on the gut and the gut is an athletic organ that can be trained. There is some research now in humans and that is expanding so there's more research being done in that. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. This may be the stuff that you talk about in your training session or in recovery after that session. Um, so what we do is we break it down and invite a guest expert, uh, usually in part A, and then we follow that up with uh, having an athlete on for the part B and they provide their perspective on that particular question. So today's episode, it's 41A, what is gut training and how do I do it? We know it's a a really common question and it's one that um, our listeners have been asking. What we're going to do is discuss what we actually mean by gut training, what is it, and why do we even want to consider doing it? What's the evidence that it actually works? How do we go about gut training and what type of benefits can we expect if we do implement gut training? But before we get to that, let's find out how our Alan McCubbin is going. Yeah, I'm all right. Thanks, Steph. I've been watching the tour a bit this week. It's been a few spectacular stages, so it's been great to watch and uh, keep up with that. And my oldest uh, eight-year-old gets into it and he wants to watch it he woke up one night with a nightmare and then I was watching the tour and he wanted to stay up and watch it till the end I said no that's another hour and a half away (laughs) you'll go back to bed Um, but yes he's been uh, watching replays and highlights and things in the mornings so he's been getting into it as well which is great so yeah been uh, been enjoying that and how about you the final countdown mode for your thesis what's it two weeks two and a half weeks till it's due yes yep yeah getting excited, hoping there's not a heap of changes that I need to make when I get some feedback. Um, And yeah, just looking forward to, you know, just having that weight off my shoulders and uh, getting stuck into some other projects that you and I are even, um, you know, looking to do with um, this podcast. So that will be nice. Yep. In terms of social media shout-outs, we've had a, had a bit happening. Yeah, yeah, we had a bit on Instagram. We had Tom contact us last week. He messaged us with a question around carbohydrate for training. We obviously had the podcast a few weeks ago, 39A, with Aska Yerkin dropped talking about you know how much carbohydrate should I have during training and racing. Uh, and he talked about, well, okay, well, it's well all well and good to have lots of carbs during training, but is that a problem in terms of fat adaptation and we should be you know, restricting and there's sort of conflicting messages there and why you would choose one over the other. So I guess 
Uh, we did speak a little bit with Asker about this, and he mentioned the fact that, you know, you don't have that sort of high-carb fueling in every single training session of a week, uh, and there may be stages where you deliberately go in with the aim of, you know, going in underfueled and trying to really push the body in terms of its ability to use fat and get some adaptation there because what you're trying to do is not you know, pull the body in one direction or the other to the extreme. You're not trying to say, I could only use carbohydrate, but do it really well, or I could only use fat and do that really well. You want to be able to use the mixture of the two fuels and be able to change between the two as the the situation demands. So uh, I think, you know, that episode combined with our very first episode, episode 1A, which was around low carbohydrate diets, which I guess is taking that to the, the extreme, not just, you know, fasting for training, but actually going low carb 24 hours, seven days a week, and then training on top of that. They're probably good examples. And then also our discussion, episode 2A, this Dr. Sam Impey, where he talked about that sort of fueling, you know, particularly leading into long training sessions and whether that's helpful or not and uh, in terms of fat adaptation versus, you know, the ability to use carbohydrates. So, yeah, I, I think the combination of those three episodes is a really good one to sort of unwrap that and, and understand, you know, where you go with that and the fact that it's not one or the other. It's a combination of the two and getting that, that balance right depending on the particular athlete you are and the particular event that you do. We also had Maddie, um, and I actually forgot about this a few weeks back, um, she actually thanked one of her friends on Instagram for the amazing potty suggestion, said she's really enjoying the long month munch. It's targeted and useful, directed specifically to runners, cyclists and triathletes. At that stage, she was currently on episode 29A, really indulging in the content, and she was a bit embarrassed because she forgot that her coach had actually been a guest on the podcast. I'm not sure which guest that is, but just this week, Maddie also mentioned the podcast again. Um, the Athletics World Championships are on at the moment as well, uh, and she was loving hearing Lyndon Hall in episode 38B. Uh, it was a great insight into training and race diet preparation from Lyndon. And obviously those championships are on right at the moment. And I can't remember if Lyndon's just had her final or she's just about to, I think it might be today actually, mm -hmm. as we record yeah. this. So good luck to Lyndon and uh, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, awesome. We had some other feedback too. Yeah, you've been out and about this week. Yes, well, not not out and about. Uh, I haven't been all the way up to northern Queensland, but uh, yeah, Sydney, who's a, a running coach up in Townsville, um, who I'd done some work with years ago, just got in contact with me this week, actually, um, about some unrelated stuff, but said he's enjoying the podcast as well and, and finding it really helpful. So yeah, it's good to awesome. hear from you, Sydney. And how about you, Steph? Have you been out and about or are you just in thesis lockdown? Not really too much out and about. So, yeah, I thought I'll let you do the out and about outing this week. <laughs> yeah, <Fair enough. laughs> Yep, locking myself away still. Yep. But just a reminder to our listeners that you can find us on social media at The Long Munch in terms of Instagram, Facebook um, and Twitter. Please send us through any questions that you do have or any constructive feedback that you'd like to, to give us. We'd love to hear from you. And, Al, do we have anything in terms of the podcast um, ratings? Yeah, yeah. We just uh, just noticed the other day another five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. So thank you to whoever left that. They're obviously anonymous. But, uh, yeah, if you'd like to leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any of those, um, yeah, we'd very much appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Today's episode, 
Yeah, episode 41A, as you said before, Steph, what is gut training and how do I do it? Uh, and again, similar to last week's episode, because it's on very much the same theme, uh, we're going to do this one in-house, given your expertise and the fact that you're finishing off a PhD related to this area, Steph. <laughs> so yeah, we'll go through this one by ourselves and uh, talk about what gut training is and why it's useful and, and how we're going to do it. Awesome. Let's get stuck into it. Obviously, the uh, first thing we need to talk about is, you know, what gut training is and why someone might want to do it. And we've, you know, we've talked about this in various episodes before. We had episode 7A, you know, why do I get gut problems during exercise, where we talked about sort of more broadly what causes gut issues. And we talked about the fact that gut training was one of those potential strategies that could be used to help. Uh, and then we also had episode 7B, which was our athlete follow-up with an Echolanos, where that was one of the specific strategies that he used. Um, and he talked about the effect that that had in, in that episode as well. So definitely recommend people go back and have a listen to those if you haven't already. But if we start off with, I guess, what gut training is, what do people mean when they say, I'm doing gut training or you should do gut training? Basically, um, what they are referring to is that the gut can be trained just like we in terms of our training we focus on you know training our muscles training our heart for for the significant load that we put on it as athletes I I think we underestimate that we should also be focusing on the gut and the gut is an athletic organ that can be trained and we I guess see that in terms of anecdotal evidence so we hear about people doing this and and see some positives, but there's been research in it. There's a large amount that we get from animal studies that we're trying to now translate more into humans, but there is some research now in humans um, and there's an area that is expanding, so there's more research being done in that. It's basically that in terms of, you know, how we can actually train the gut, there's a number of ways that we can do that. So I guess there's one way we can look at it is looking at gastric emptying. And so we know that particular nutrients uh, like carbohydrate, even fat can, can increase our gastric emptying rate. So that means how quickly something empties from the stomach into your intestine. And then we also know that we can train our um, gut tolerance and our comfort. And so we know that diet can actually improve the gut's ability to absorb and deliver nutrients such as carbohydrate. And we'll go into that in more detail. We can talk about a particular study that's looked at that. And then also looking at the perception of fullness. So, you know, things like bloating and fullness, we, we've seen that that can actually be improved when we undertake specific training. Okay. And so what, why would people need to worry about gut training or, or, you know, why would it be beneficial from an exercise point of view? What are the scenarios or situations, I suppose, in which someone might go, hmm, this is something I need to think about? Yeah. Yep. Well, I guess, first of all, we know that the gut's really important um, in terms of we need it to absorb and deliver nutrients for our, our muscles fuel, so for our performance. And then in terms of athletes, why it then is important to them is because there's a number of situations. So it depends on, you know, things in terms of what is the actual exercise, what's the 
duration and intensity. Is fuel a, a significant concern for them, particularly during exercise? Do they need to get that in? And then do they struggle in terms of gastrointestinal symptoms? So do they experience a lot of stomach discomfort, fullness, bloating? And then that, what that then does is potentially impairs their ability to tolerate trying to get something in. So they need to get in fluid, they need to get in nutrition, but due to the gut, it's limiting them and they can't get that in. So that's why they'd want to look at it. The other thing is also, I guess, in regards to fluid, if athletes are competing in extreme environments, so, you know, they're out in the heat and they are losing a significant amount of fluid, particularly if it's over a long duration, but they they just can't get in a, a reasonable amount of volume of fluid, then that's where they'd also consider um, wanting to train their gut. Yep. Okay. That all that all sort of makes good sense. So we're trying to get in fluid, we're trying to get in fuel, but we might not be able to do that effectively without getting sort of significant gut symptoms. And I guess this is a way of trying to tolerate that better and get it in better or quicker yep. or faster, however we want to kind of describe it. So okay. if we think now about how gut training actually works, what's the kind of mechanism behind it all? So what's going on from a biological point of view when you quote unquote do gut training and obviously we'll get to that shortly in terms of what that actually means or how you go about it uh, but what are we actually trying to change in the body so we're trying to change gastric emptying if we can so we want to see if we can increase or improve the ability of the gut to to empty so um, we know that with exercise particularly with prolonged and potentially with um, high intensity exercise that our gastric emptying can be delayed. And so we want to see, well, you know, if we actually do put in some effort in terms of training it, can we improve it? So so that's one aspect that we're looking at. Also, um, the accommodation of the gut. So do can we increase um, and improve the, the gut being able to accommodate a large amount of fluid and volume? So I guess that's kind of looking at do can we extend the walls um, of the gut and improve its ability to, to tolerate a large amount of volume or pressure. So physically making it larger or more stretchy, more elastic to be able to expand in size as you put a lot in there. Yeah, not being as sensitive, yes. Mm. The other aspect is the transporters and, and the enzymes in the small intestine. Can we increase the amount of transporters, as an example, carbohydrate transporters? Can we increase the activity of those so that we can improve our ability to um, absorb and digest? And even hormones involved in um, regulating gastric emptying because we can have hormones that feed back to the gut and actually get the gut to delay its emptying. So can we improve that and potentially change that inhibition? We call it, we call it feedback inhibition. And the transporters that we talk about are things like GLUT5, GLUT2, sodium glucose transporter as well, dependent transporter. I'm, I'm not sure if we can potentially influence the contraction um, of, of, of the gut and, and peristalsis. So that's the way that the, the muscles lining the gut push everything through from the top to bottom, essentially. Yeah, yep, yep, exactly. 
So they're probably some of the main ones that we're looking at in terms of training, the the mechanisms. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So it sounds like there's probably kind of three aspects there if we kind of summarize it. One is just being more comfortable with stuff in there and being able to accommodate that without feeling like we're going to regurgitate or vomit or anything if it's in the stomach, for example, or without Mm. pain and discomfort if it's lower down in the intestinal tract. So that's the Mm. first aspect. So just accommodating the volume of food and fluid. The second Mm. part is the ability to digest and absorb the nutrients from that food, particularly obviously during exercise, the focus will be on carbohydrate. So the ability to digest that and get it out of the gut into the bloodstream to send it off to muscles and things where we need to be able to use it. So making sure that's not a limiting factor. And then I guess the third one, as you said, is controlling the movement of things through the gut in terms of the way that the nervous system and the muscles that line the gut interact and push things through, whether it's emptying the stomach quickly, because I guess it's a bit like a funnel, but also then when it gets into the intestines, which is the pipe, is is actually the way it squeezes and moves things through that pipe. You don't want it obviously too fast, but you don't want it too slow either. Yeah, yep. And then I guess the other aspect is when we do this gut training is also there's that psychological component as well that's that's being trained. Yep, yep, definitely. Yep. Okay, and so if we think about that, there's sort of these different concepts there, but do we have good evidence, either anecdotal or scientific, that this actually works? Yeah, yep. So anecdotally, as you know, our, we um, often quote about the competitive eaters and we see these really impressive competitions where uh, I'm sure this world record has been beaten by now, but at one stage there was a person that could, can you believe it, ingest 69 hot dogs, including the bun, um, in 10 minutes. So so we know that, you know, there's competitive eaters that they actually train their gut. They don't just kind of rock up on the day and then see if I can do this. They actually undertake particular training methods. So um, some strategies they use are things like chewing large pieces of chewing gum for long periods of time or they um, drink fluids or eat just large amounts of, of food and they progressively increase the volume um, over time and they do that over many weeks to be able to, you know, tolerate that amount that they're trying to consume in an actual competition. So anecdotally we have evidence from competitive eaters and then in terms of, I guess, the, the research or some studies that have been done, There's really nice work by Lambert in 2008, um, and he particularly focused on fluid tolerance training. And what he actually did is had a group of runners where he worked out what they actually lost in their sweat in in the first run. So they ran for like 90 minutes at 65% of their VO2, and that was in normal kind of ambient conditions so 25 degrees and then what they actually did is they got those runners to consume a carbohydrate electrolyte solution ad lib first in their first run and then what they did is over the next five or six runs they actually got them to consume a volume every 10 minutes equal to their sweat production over that 10 minutes of of running and what that actually equated to was about 1.2, 1.3 litres over that 90 minutes, whereas in the run one where they were just drinking ad lib, they consumed about 500, 900 mils. 
And in this study, they were given one minute, one minute to actually get the fluid down the hatch because what they actually wanted to do was simulate what normally happens in competition when we're running through the aid stations. We're obviously not given a significant amount of time to, to get that fluid down the hatch. And they, they did these training bouts with um, a break of 7 to 11 days. So that's obviously over a, a period of time that they did this training. They, they found that the gut comfort, that perception was improved they actually didn't find that there was any improvement in gastric emptying. It actually ended up being the same from one, two to, to run six. And so I guess what they thought in terms of, well, you know, what actually happened in that regard is whether the walls did extend and then that comfort was improved. That's what they thought happened or it was a psychological effect. Hmm. And so I guess there's kind of two parts to that. Some people might think, well, if the rate that it empties from the stomach is no different, you can't deliver the fluid to the blood any quicker. So what's the point from a hydration point of view? But I guess the the flip side to that is, you know, you're not sipping continuously on fluid in most running, cycling, hmm. triathlon events because you just can't. It's not practical. So at least if you get it in the stomach, you've got it in hmm. the system and it's then going to slowly drip feed through between when you've drank now and when you're going to drink next time whether it's in 10 minutes or 20 minutes or half an hour or an hour or you know depending on the event and the availability of fluid um, so even if it's not increasing the emptying of the stomach if at least you can get it into the system and sort of primed ready to go and not vomit it back up that's still a win exactly because you know this is just looking at a 90 minute um you know simulation but what we've got to consider is where we see symptoms that happen it's most commonly in ultra endurance and it's usually around that sort of three, four hour mark where the upper gut discomfort, things like nausea and that that bloating, um, reflux, etc. that's where it occurs. So even though in this short period of time there wasn't a significant amount of symptoms, it's it's trying to then put it into practice when the, the symptoms are occurring. The other aspect is Perhaps if they increase the intervention, so, you know, did it for longer than six weeks, they may have seen an improvement in gastric emptying. They can't rule that out. So I guess that's questioning, do we actually need to do this intervention for a longer period of time or perhaps even just in a, a more intensive block? You know, they had kind of like six to seven day or seven to 11 days separation between each training. What happens if they actually did, you know, two weeks of doing that quite intensive? Do we see a, a change? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So that's obviously the volume side of things. And while I don't think there's any studies looking at solid food in a similar context, mm. we don't necessarily yep. have any reason to think that would be different. And we'll come to some of the anecdotal stuff later, which suggests that probably it is the same. And the competitive eaters is a probably a good example of that as well that you mentioned already. Yeah. What about the carbohydrate side of things? So we said, you know, one of the other purposes of gut training is actually to improve the production of all the digestive enzymes and the, the things that help absorb carbohydrate out of the gut into the blood. Do we have evidence that, that those things can actually improve as a result of gut training? Again, there's been some work. I think this study was by Cunningham. Um, and colleagues so there was a um, they had a group of volunteers who had their standard diet supplemented with 400 grams of carbohydrate so glucose they did that for a period of three days and they uh, actually tested their gastric emptying rate 
and they found that it was faster compared to when they just ingested the standard diet alone. And that changed from a median um, time of 21 minutes in the, in the supplemented group to being about 29 minutes when they were just on that standard um, diet. So there was a significant improvement in emptying rate. And they actually found that protein, when they compared the emptying rate of a protein drink, that, that didn't change. And what that's suggesting is they were only doing gut training in terms of carbohydrate. So protein wasn't changed perhaps because what we need to do in gut training is be specific to the nutrient um, that we're trying to improve. So, so that was interesting. There was another study that showed when they supplemented a standard diet with a little bit more glucose, so 440 grams for a, for a bit of a longer period of time, four to seven days. That's not a little bit more, Steph. That's like an entire day's intake. <laughs> No, but a little bit more than the previous study. Right, okay, Um, yes. Yeah. (laughs) What they found was the gastric emptying um, increased in terms of actually for both glucose and fructose, even though they didn't actually increase fructose, they were just increasing um, glucose. And in terms of that, they actually tested a particular hormone that's involved in that feedback inhibition that we spoke about earlier and they actually found that concentrations of that were were increased so they think then that there is this mechanism being uh, influenced um, by gut training so where there's less inhibition in terms of if we train the gut and then there was another study that showed consuming they actually did focus on consuming an increased amount of fructose they increased it by 120 grams, which is quite significant in terms of fructose. And they did that for three days. And they found that the gastric emptying rate was increased um, for fructose, but not um, with glucose. So it may be, again, we need to focus on what nutrients we're using. And I guess one thing that came out of this is some of these studies only did it for three days and they found an improvement um, in gut emptying. So it doesn't necessarily have to be for a long period of of time. And then a more recent one, Al, um, was from the group that we work with from from Monash, so Costa and colleagues in 2017. And they looked at the impact of two weeks of repetitive gut training, so gut challenge. They looked at a variety of measures, so gastrointestinal um, status, um, so looking at injury, glucose availability, fuel kinetics so how well we oxidize carbohydrate and also looked at running performance they had 25 um, recreational endurance runners and they did a gut challenge so basically they ran for two hours at 60 percent vo2 because it's a nice i guess intensity that we think is similar for ultra runners and they consumed 30 grams of carbohydrate every 20 minutes for, for one hour, so basically 90 grams of carbs in that one hour, mm-hmm. and they consumed that in a um, two-to-one glucose fructose yep. um, form, in a gel form initially. And then what happened was after that challenge, they got participants, they randomised them to either a carbohydrate gel, a carbohydrate food, or a placebo gut training group. And what they did is then they undertook two weeks of repetitive gut training so basically consuming that 90 grams of carbs an hour 
either in gel food or they didn't train it. And then after that training period, they completed a second gut challenge trial. And what they actually found was gastrointestinal symptoms were reduced after the gut training intervention for both the carbohydrate gel and carbohydrate food group, much greater than what it was for placebo. And then they actually also found that the distance tests they did after two hours of running, so they had an hour distance test, and that improved on the carbohydrate gel and the carbohydrate food group compared to placebo. They found no difference in oxidation rates or in the integrity of of the gut, um, so in terms of any injury, and no change in the stress hormone cortisol between the studies. But they did also find that with the carbohydrate food group, they actually found a reduction in malabsorption and an increase in glucose availability during the running compared with placebo. So more of it was getting absorbed, in other words. Exactly, exactly. And so again, here, it's also just suggesting that you want to be specific with the gut training that you're doing, whether we're looking at the type of nutrient, carbohydrate, um, protein or fat, but also the form that it's in as well. So food, gel, solution can play a role there too. So that was the, I guess, looking at carbohydrates. There's also been some work that's been done in, in fat intake what they found is that actually also improved gastric emptying rate. So they did seven days of a higher fat diet. So they consumed 260 grams a day of of fat. And I guess with these studies, they've looked at seven days or 14 days. And it, it suggests that with these studies and their findings that perhaps if we are trying to improve our emptying rate of fat we may need a longer period of time compared to carbohydrate so we either need seven or 14 days with fat whereas with carbohydrate we've seen that we can get those effects with three days but yeah it it can also improve um, with with looking at fat and perhaps that's due to particular receptors in in the gut yep yeah and so I guess you know we talk a lot in this podcast about the fact that the body is very adaptable um, to the environment that you throw at it or you expose it to. And in this case, you're exposing it either to a greater volume during exercise with the fluid example uh, or a greater amount of either carbohydrate or fat with those examples. I think there's another study from one of our previous podcast guests, Greg Cox, that looked at um, not so much gut training during exercise, but just increasing the amount of carbohydrate on a day-to-day basis. And there seemed to be some benefit there as well, because again, you're exposing the body to more carbohydrate and forcing it to get better at being able to deal with that is there any evidence i guess the the reverse of that which i guess you could call gut untraining for a lack of a better word so for example someone goes on a low carb high fat diet so they really cut carbs out of their diet do we know that if when they're challenged with carbohydrate again they tend to get a lot more gut issues or just don't digest and absorb it very well because the body said well i don't have much carbohydrate here to deal with so i'm just going to turn down all the bits involved with carbohydrate digestion and absorption because it's not really needed mm, yeah anecdotally we we see that a lot for sure so yes we see that when we do those interventions of, of training low for a period of time that we do see an increase in gastrointestinal symptoms. I guess like you've just referred to, you can have a look at Greg Cox's really nicely done study in terms of carbohydrate where they increased carbohydrate in a particular group of athletes compared to 
just a standardised amount and they did see an improvement and increase in carbohydrate oxidation in the group that had the higher carbohydrate diet compared to when they didn't. So I guess that's just showing that that there is a change. But anecdotally, we do see that a lot. Mm, yep. And I guess mm. this comes back to, you know, why you would want to gut train in the first place is the fact that there's a lot of runners, cyclists and triathletes, particularly the runners, but, you know, it is cyclists and triathletes too that go out and train and don't consume much carbohydrate and or fluid, then get to race day and try to take on heaps and wonder why it's mm. all going pear-shaped. And this is exactly why, because the gut's not used to it because it hasn't been exposed to it. So the whole purpose of gut training is exposing your gut to that amount of carbohydrate or that volume of fluid and food and things during training, during those exercise conditions. So when you get to race day, the body's adapted to be able to cope with that. Exactly. And in animal studies, we've seen that, you know, where we, yeah, increase a particular nutrient, we see changes in the transporters and the enzymes. So it's suggesting that that is probably what they're What's being done is is they're um, not being activated, they're not increasing and potentially they're impaired. And, you know, we saw that with the work that Louise Burke has done with individuals where they undertake a, a high fat diet and then they see that the ability to break down carbohydrate is is impaired. So, yeah, so that's definitely an effect. I should also mention that, you know, we've just spoken about training the gut in terms of using fluid and carbohydrate, fat, etc. There is also evidence that other factors like sweeteners, sodium chloride and dietary fiber intake may actually also have an effect in terms of training the gut too. Yep. Yep, absolutely. Okay. And so, I mean, for the sound of that, I mean, apart from those people who are maybe doing, say, sprint distance triathlon or, you know, that some of the shorter endurance just you know running events and things like that that probably don't need to eat or drink much if anything during their events um mm. and perhaps don't do the longer training sessions that require it but for everyone else mm. that does would it be fair to say that probably everyone at least to some extent needs to be training their gut yeah i would say so and i would also say that even if you don't potentially get gut symptoms um, you know during your event the question is if you do undertake particular gut training can you potentially improve your ability to oxidize the the carbohydrate and or the delivery of nutrients does that actually improve which potentially may mean that you can burn more energy so as, as a performance improvement rather than just a not performance worsening from gut issues yeah, exactly. There needs to be very much more research in this area. There's, you know, a small amount now, so there needs to be a lot more in this area. But for sure, I'd be checking that because we shouldn't just be satisfied with doing okay now. If if you actually want to improve your performance, well, I think this is a, a, a point that can potentially improve Mm. And we spoke with Asker about that a couple of weeks ago in episode 39A around carbohydrate during training and events and the fact that you know, a lot of runners don't get as much carbohydrate in as cyclists, for example. You know, the cyclists, mm. particularly at an elite level, are sort of pushing you know, 80, 90, 100 grams, even more sometimes per hour, whereas the runners are often down more around the 50, 60 gram mark um, with a few exceptions. Yeah. And a lot of that's not necessarily that running makes the gut not work as well. It may simply be that they don't, because it's not as easy to get it in 
in terms of just having access to it and being able to chew and swallow while you're running compared to riding, they essentially are less well gut trained. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Okay. So it sounds like gut training is obviously going to be an important thing to do. I guess now we need to start thinking about, okay, well, how do I actually do this? So what are the different techniques or methods you can use to try and train your gut? to get better, whether it's the volume or whether it's the, the actual nutrient digestion and absorption? Yeah, exactly. So I guess the methods, the type of methods that we that we can do is either training with a relatively large volume of fluid to, to train the stomach. We could train immediately after we have a meal. We can train with relatively high carbohydrate intake during exercise we can increase the carbohydrate content of our diet and we could simulate the race with a with a race nutrition plan as well and I guess again in that regard is even if we have a particular target of fuel that we want to try and get in in terms of our race because maybe we've undertaken a an assessment where we actually learn how much our bodies can oxidize and burn. So we've got an actual goal of, all right, well, you know, 60 grams of carbohydrate an hour is good for me. Well, potentially in your your training, actually going beyond that uh, and, you know, going 90 grams or more of carbs an hour and challenging your gut is another way of being able to potentially improve your tolerance. So if you can tolerate more than you'll actually need on race day, then race day should be a lot more comfortable. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Okay. And I mean, I guess there's a few different questions that come to mind there in terms of, you know, there's various different strategies. I, I guess the first one would be, do you go from nothing to everything straight away or do you sort of slowly build that up over time? Like obviously if you were going in the gym to lift weights, for example, you wouldn't go in there and go, I want to be able to bench press, you know, 100 kilos currently I can do 20 so I'm just going to go to 100 until I can actually do it um and I'm guessing with gut training you know if you went to that nth degree of you know the full volume or the full amount of carbohydrate that I want to be able to get to on day one of your gut training that may not end well Mm. yeah it's it's a good question and it's um not one we really know the answer to I think it can go either way and it's it's very individual because we see in the studies that there's a lot of variation with individuals but there's also a point of we actually need to challenge the gut and this is one that I always have to reinforce to people and say you're going to feel uncomfortable, you're going to get symptoms. Um, unfortunately, you need to push beyond that because otherwise if we just keep on going to where comfortable is as we've just said you know we see runners as an example just going at the potentially a smaller amount because they see if they try and increase it that they get symptoms but we need to challenge the gut to be able to adapt you know um, we need to challenge potentially those stomach walls to see to to get them to extend um, we need to see if we can improve gastric emptying, et cetera. So you see in the in the study by Costa and colleagues where they they started straight with 90 grams of, of carbs with a, a group of recreational runners that I would guarantee that probably a large majority of them were not acclimatised. They weren't because otherwise they wouldn't do the study of getting, you know, 90 grams of carbs, but they went straight to that. 
and they did that for a period of two weeks intensified. So I, I would I would almost base that on an individual basis, seeing how significant people's symptoms are. Can they actually do that from going from not much to a high amount? And for some, maybe you do more of that gentle approach. And then for others, maybe you, you do challenge it and see how they respond. And then if things aren't going well, maybe, yeah, back it off. But I've, I've seen just with some athletes that I work with and perhaps you too, our where we do get them just to challenge to quite a reasonable amount and after potentially you know a couple of weeks they do see an improvement with that tolerance yeah yeah and I I guess it's like any other form of training isn't it like if you continuously train within a you know rating of perceived exertion that's comfortable you never experience discomfort in training you're probably not going to improve in terms of how Mm. you train your muscles and your nervous system and your heart and all those kind of things and it's the same with the gut you know unless you put it under some stress it has no reason to adapt and so it's not going to adapt and you're not you're never going to see that improvement yep and so i guess those approaches there is either just go to whatever the end goal is and suffer through until till it's no longer discomfort or um you know till it becomes comfortable or as you said you know if currently you're at 20 grams an hour of carbohydrate, go to 30 until that's comfortable and then bring it up to 40 or 50 until that's comfortable and then slowly ratchet it up, sort of that almost progressive Mm -hmm. overload like you would in any other form of training. Um, So either can work. Yeah. 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 Okay. And in terms of, I guess, the, the frequency of gut training, is this something we need to do every single training session we do? Is it once a week, once a fortnight? How frequently do we think at this stage we should be going out there and deliberately doing this kind of gut training. Another one where we don't have really nice clear guidance in terms of the specific protocol, but we we think or we suggest that you don't have to necessarily do it every, you know, every day and we don't really want to because I guess as we term it and as Louise Burke um, commonly says as an athlete we want to be um, we want to have really good metabolic flexibility, so we don't want to be good at just burning one type of fuel. So I think if we just did that where we were just, you know, smashing carbs every um, every day, we'll become real good carbohydrate burners, but then we can impair our ability to tolerate and, and burn other fuels, particularly fats. So I would say we want to try and periodise the, the gut training. Um, also, if we're smashing carbs every single day, we'll probably be gaining weight on our athletes and they won't return to us so we we would choose usually you know it might be one or two sessions in the week and we'd do that over a number of time in terms of the exact period of time all all I can say in terms of guidance there is looking at the research where um, it seems a few days of increasing carbohydrate quite substantially this was in terms of the diet we see an improvement so that's in terms of diet in terms of actually manipulating the nutrients during training. Well, then we look at Ricardo's work where they did two weeks. We look at Lambert's work with the fluid where they did that for over six weeks or so. So I think you want to give yourself time. We always like athletes to, you know, give us a few months or so of of working with things. So I, I would say a few months of putting in some gut training sessions in, in each of their week, we should see some some changes. And then it just depends of what things are you doing? Are you looking at fluid? Are you looking at carbs? Are you looking at your diet? Are you looking at during training? 
um, that probably doing a, um, a variety of those. Yeah, and, and I guess it may be also the number of sessions rather than a, a period of time. So, for example, in that, that paper you mentioned, the cost of paper, you know, it was only two weeks, mm. but they were doing mm. that five days a week for two weeks. So it was exactly. 10 sessions in that two weeks where they were, you know, 10 sessions of gut training. So if you were doing yep. it once a week, that would be essentially 10 weeks worth. So maybe mm. it's the number of sessions rather than, you know, a certain period of time per se. Exactly, and that's where I guess you saw Lambert's study where they did something like that where they did a session and they had you know seven to 14 days break yep that that there's that yep change yeah yeah and, and then I guess you know most people will have you know different types of training sessions over the week they've got their easy mm. sessions where it might be you know an hour at a pretty sort of low intensity they might have some interval sessions during the week at various different types of intervals and then the long ride or run or brick session depending on what sort of sport they're competing in. Is there a certain type of session that's better suited to this? Should they always do this in their long sessions or should they always do it in their easy sessions or their interval sessions? Do we know anything about that or have any sort of recommendations around that? Unfortunately, not that I'm aware of, no. Again, when you look at the studies, they tend to do it, well, some of the ones I've looked at, they're quite a comfortable Rate, you know, again, looking at the cost of paper, it was at 60% VO2, so a nice steady rate. With Lambert's study, that was a nice comfy rate. So we actually, it will be interesting to see if we actually do push the intensity, what is the change in terms of gut training as well. So research in that area is warranted. But I like to do it in a variety of, of different stimulus to, to train it. So because when you look at competition, you know, we're, we're trying to consume things when our gut is impaired and when we're going at uncomfortable paces as well. So I would always encourage at least the athletes that I work with is to do it in all settings. So sometimes we'll do it at a nice comfy pace, long run, because again, I'm also going to do it, uh, challenge their gut when we've been running for several hours. And then definitely an intensity, so high-intensity sessions, I'll get them to do it. And then where we also use that pre-event consumption as well, you know, so we're, we're eating and then we're – so often an example for a high-intensity session is I'll get athletes to consume um, a reasonable amount of food and then they'll go out and do a high-intensity session. Um, yeah, so variety variety for me what about you Al is that what you tend to do yeah 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 I mean I generally would uh, focus a little bit on the longer sessions simply because it becomes a bit of a race simulation Mm -hmm. in terms of you know also things like the flavor fatigue how you're going to go with three four five hours of exercise and and having certain food and so it's familiarization and getting used to having the particular not just the volume and the quantity, but the types of products, whether it's sweet, whether it's savoury, whether it's bars versus gels versus other forms of food uh, and drinks, that can be an important part of, of more just general race day preparation rather than specific gut training, but they kind of combine quite nicely um, mm. so that that can often be the case. And particularly where, say, for something like Ironman Triathlon, where you might be relying on picking up gels and drinks and things at aid stations along the course, a lot of it is also practicing with the specific brands or products that are going to be available to you on the course if you're not providing your own. And so that forms, for me, a part of it as well. But, yeah, certainly if it's something like a fluid tolerance issue, then I might do it particularly in some of those harder sessions because where you're going to have, I guess, gut intolerance is probably likely to be greater in some of those sessions. So if you can tolerate it in an interval session, 
you're probably going to be absolutely fine when it comes to your longer sort of race pace efforts. Yeah, yep. And that training, again, in the, that long durations for training, uh, you're also then with the flavour fatigue and stuff like that, you, that is also training the gut there as well, just with um, the the perception which can be trained too and the, the psychology. So, yeah, there's a massive benefit of doing it in a range of, of circumstances. Yep. Okay, so let's summarise all of this now, Steph. So I'll start and you can correct me where I've gone wrong along the way. Yes. (laughs) Um, So I guess if we think about gut training, it's partly about tolerating the volume of food and fluids that we might need to consume during exercise. And it's also about being able to successfully digest and absorb the amount of the nutrients and particularly carbohydrate, because that's going to be our focus during exercise. We're not so much worried about fat and protein, generally speaking. So I guess the reasons that you might do gut training is either because you're not able to achieve the amount of carbohydrate in terms of grams per hour that you're hoping to do on race day. Currently, you're not at that level, so you're trying to get there and you need to get the gut used to being able to do that, both in terms of the volume and the the digestion and absorption. Or you have a large sweat loss and you're not able to replace that because you're not tolerating the volume of fluid required to, to adequately replace those sweat losses and prevent significant dehydration. So if we think about the things that we're trying to get in during exercise, it's generally carbohydrate and fluid and maybe a bit of sodium but that's tiny from a a gut perspective so it's really the the water and the carbohydrates so it's being able to tolerate those things and obviously the volume depending on what combination of products that those come in so to do that we need to obviously expose the body to those sort of quantities whether that's a stepwise progression up to where you want to get to or whether you just hit it with that full amount straight away Mm -hmm deal with the discomfort initially and it becomes less uncomfortable over time as your body adapts to that. What's it doing? Well, we think part of it is the stomach uh, essentially being more accommodating to that volume, so particularly from the fluid point of view, but obviously with food products and things as well, whether the stomach is actually stretching or whether it's just sending less sort of discomfort signals back to our brain through the nervous system, we don't know 100%. Maybe it can empty the stomach a little bit faster, although at this stage we don't have the evidence for that and may need longer-term studies. And then with the carbohydrate, we do know that obviously if you expose the body to those higher levels of carbohydrate, we'll get better at being able to digest and absorb those. So that's important as well. Uh, Now, in terms of, I guess, how to go about gut training, we can look at, particularly if it's a volume-related thing, deliberately going into exercise on a full stomach. So you already got that discomfort or you know that volume in your stomach to begin with and then continuously you know going for it after that in terms of the volume of food and fluids that you're that you're getting in during the exercise if it's carbohydrate then it's more about the the grams per hour that you're consuming during the exercise and trying to ratchet that up over time or, or going to the full bit and just allowing the body to adapt to that over multiple training sessions have i missed anything No, um, you've done well. I was just going to say the other thing that potentially can be trained that I didn't specifically say is, you know, we we spoke about what you've already covered, but also the transit time, whether when we are undertaking gut training, whether the actual how quickly something moves through from the gut to the rectum, um, whether that can actually improve. So like whether it's the more intestinal transit or large intestinal transit, that's something that we don't know either whether we can change that. Yep. Okay. Mm. 
Cool. All right, and then just finally a reminder that if you want to hear a bit more about this topic, episode 7B of the podcast, we had our athlete guest, Nico Lanos, who talks specifically about sort of the gut issues that he'd had, the protocol that we'd gone through to kind of try and figure that out, which relates back to episode 7A, why do I get gut problems during exercise? But then he talked a bit about this gut training, and he was a great example of someone who's done that quite successfully and with an amazing outcome so that'll be really well worth a listen and, and his was i guess more volume related rather than you know grams per hour of carbohydrate related mm, yeah yep and i'd say stay tuned because there's more research being done in this area um so yep. i know that we'll be able to have some people on in the future hour to give us more more evidence yep now what i'm going to do is switch it over because i never talk this much um, and I much prefer to hear your voice. So I'm going to go bonus round for our. So biggest sports nutrition failure in your own, whether it be biking or sailing um, career? Mm. Uh, none that I can think of from a sailing point of view, although that was a lot further a long, a long time ago. But I would say, yeah, in mountain biking, I remember doing a um, – 100k race uh, my first 100k race and i think there was two actually two failures in this one the first mm -hmm. one was carbohydrate loading big big volume you know i'm a sports dietitian you know lots of carbs lots of carbs but mm -hmm. i probably just didn't pick the best food choices and also probably back ended the day a bit too much so i didn't have enough at the start of the day was playing catch up which is pretty common with carb loading mm -hmm. and then just felt so bloated and uncomfortable that I just couldn't get to sleep very well the night before the race so that was one uh, and then the second one in the race itself there was uh, uh, the Otway Odyssey for those in Victoria uh, the old course that started in Apollo Bay it was an amazing course you'd climb up through sort of the Otways up to Forest and then around the sort of the mountain bike trails there uh, and about half about the halfway point of the race there's a checkpoint where it's also where the finish line is at Forest and you go through there and you can top up with whatever. And for some reason, I completely, I can't remember if I forgot completely or just didn't top up enough with water and actually ran out of water on the next section before the next mm -hmm. aid station. I got like about a third or halfway round and it was starting to get quite hot and I was really thirsty and then I just ran out of fluid and there was no fluid available and I just suffered like a mule for the next 20 Ks or something. It was mm -hmm. awful. Yep. <laughs> so good um good learnings from you there and something that you emphasize now with the, the um athletes you work with yep definitely yep yep and what's the first thing you're going to do once your kids are back at school which I know that's already now um and you've had a bit bit of downtime because I know you've had this you know massive six months um so yeah what's on your list uh Exercise, definitely one that's sort of fallen by the wayside a little bit over the last few months, sadly. Uh, so yeah. definitely that. Definitely getting more sleep is mm -hmm. another big one. Uh, and then the other one is a whole lot of stuff around the house that needs catching up on. Um, yeah. The garden looks like a bit of a jungle at the moment, so that needs <laughs> attending to. Yeah. Um, so that's definitely one. And just some other bits and pieces around the house, like we've got to get a couple of windows tinted and things like that. You know, just little stuff like that that yeah. has kind of sat on the to-do list for months and months and months and we can finally get around to doing, which is good. Yeah, yeah. Um, awesome. And favourite sporting moment um, in 2022 so far? 
definitely the Giro d'Italia and Jai Henley <laughs> winning there. Um, I think we've mentioned on the podcast briefly, you know, Jai used to ride uh, very briefly for a team that I'd work with. And so I met him a few times, not a lot, because he was also in the national under 23 team at the time and spent most of his year overseas in Europe. But I did get to meet him a few times and, and do a little bit of work with him. Um, so, yeah, great, great to see him. And obviously in 2020, he finished second, had a horror year in 2021. And everyone was sort of saying, well, you know, was he a one-hit wonder? Was he was he going to get back to that level? Uh, and then to come and, and win it in the way he did on that big climb uh, this year was, was just amazing to see. So, yeah, that was really cool. Awesome. And um, bucket list place to visit and why? I think probably the Kimberley and Central yeah. Australia. So two places I've always wanted to go but never got around to so yeah one day i'll get to both of those hopefully while they're still as amazing as they are now you never know with with climate change and things whether they'll still be as beautiful in say 15 or 20 years time as Mm. they are now so hopefully i'll get there sooner rather than later yeah and whether your eyesight's going to be as good in 15 years (laughs) settle down (laughs) there's glasses for that (laughs) there is there is um awesome cool uh, well, hopefully this episode has been um, useful and, and hopefully quite practical for our listeners in terms of gut training. I know uh, that you and I will probably be referring to it a lot with the athletes that then we um, work with when we're trying to convince them about undertaking gut training. And we're going to actually have a really good case study following this one up. Um, our, so did you want to let the listeners know? Yeah, yeah. So our next episode, obviously, 41B, um, What again, what is gut training and how do I do it? But we're going to have uh, actually a, an ultra-endurance athlete that you've worked with, Steph, Ash Daniels, who um, who had done some work with you at the start of the year and then um, wanted to catch up, but you were busy with thesis. So he ended up catching up with me and then he explained to me what he'd been doing with you and how much carbohydrate he was getting in. And I was like, that's the perfect example of gut training working well and someone who's done it properly. So I thought he's the perfect person to get on the podcast and explain what happened, what he did, where he started and, and where he's got to. So, yeah, really um, happy to have Ash on the on the podcast next week. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Otherwise, if people do have questions, as you've seen, we, we do try to answer them on the podcast. So please shoot them through on to our social media, Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And if you'd like to refer on to other people, if you found a particular episode um, beneficial, we'd love you to and potentially hit subscribe to the podcast. We're on all your popular podcast platforms. Yeah, and just a reminder, we've obviously mentioned a few different episodes, past episodes in this one, uh, but there is a whole back catalogue of things there. So if you're looking for a particular question, you may find that it has already been answered. So you can flick back through there. Often with your podcast apps, you only see, you know, the last 10 episodes or so Mm -hmm. or five episodes. But if you scroll back, I mean, obviously we're up to 41 at the moment. So there's a lot of different questions that have been answered and you might find something back there that's that's really helpful to you and, and just answering the exact question that you've got in your head. Yeah, cool. Otherwise, we will see you next week. Yeah, we'll do. Bye, everyone.